Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, professor, and chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today on the show, we're going to discuss tall poppy syndrome and how it can hurt your ministry. So Aaron, some of our listeners may have heard this before from a blog post you did, but can you explain for us what is tall poppy syndrome and how does it negatively impact ministry? I was introduced to this term several years ago, and it was new to me at the time, but it did describe something that I've observed for many, many years in Christian ministry. I observed this before I was even in Christian ministry, and I've continued to see it as what I would consider a problem uh, within, especially within biblical Christianity, evangelical and reformed camps of Christianity. And what it what it tries to to capture is this this ecclesiastical phenomenon whereby many Christians automatically by default assume that if someone's influential in the Christian church, if a church is growing, if a church is fruitful, it must by necessity be compromised and it needs to be chopped off. It needs to be brought down. And we see this in Christian culture, which isn't very Christian necessarily, when people generally look out at the Christian landscape, they'll they'll pick three or four or five or six or 10 of the most prominent Christian leaders of the day or bloggers or authors or musicians of the day and write endless gossip columns on them, pick apart every aspect of their theology, attack their churches, troll them, start blogs about them, and never spend much time, really any time, harassing or bullying or calling out small churches that may be marked by compromise, there tends to be this fixation on trying to tear down large ministries. So the term, that's the phenomenon, the term tall poppy syndrome comes from a couple historical accounts whereby purportedly a king, for example, would go out into a field of poppies with some of his henchmen, and instead of saying, hey guys, I got a problem with this particular general or this statesman or this governor, and I want them assassinated, he would go out into a field of poppies, and let's say all the poppies were on average three feet tall, but a few of them maybe grew to four feet tall, he'd cut the the tops off, those taller poppies. And by doing so, he'd be sending a message without actually saying it to his henchmen to go and assassinate or take down or depose Anybody that seemed to have a little bit too big of a following. So if there was a governor that was particularly loved or a statesman that was particularly appreciated or a general that was particularly successful, they would be viewed as a threat and they needed to be chopped off. So tall poppy syndrome essentially is this phenomenon that we see in many Christian communities today that attacks relentlessly and ruthlessly, and I would dare say unchristianly, anyone within Christianity that rises above the fray, so to speak. So again, if a preacher happens to have extraordinarily gifts and a large following, if a musician writes a lot of songs and tends to be getting a lot of traction, if a church tends to be growing by a rate that we would consider unusual, if a author tends to be pumping out a lot of books and people are reading their books, they must be bad and we have to cut them off because they're a threat to true, faithful, biblical Christianity. So that's the syndrome in a nutshell. Okay. So in in the church, we often think of Christianity in terms of the younger serving the older, maybe the thought of the first shall be last. You know, teachings about being small, being a servant, being last. Um, what about those who say that Tall poppies have no place in the Christian faith. Well, we we do want to be marked by humility, and throughout Scripture, God often chooses the unexpected, the obscure, the out of the way to accomplish great purposes. We see this in the Toledos of the Patriarchs, where you know in that culture, 
based upon this law of primogeniture, the, the older son would inherit the estate. But what's fascinating as you read through the accounts of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob is that while that was the norm, God demonstrates his grace to the obscure, to the younger, to the unexpected by often picking the person you don't think is going to be picked to accomplish great things for his honor and glory. So the, the, the older ends up serving the younger. The person that you don't think is going to be central to God's purposes and plans suddenly rises above the rest. They become actually the tall poppy. So there's this unexpected rising of an obscure person into a place of prominence. So we, we do know that God often uses the small things of this world to confound the, the wise that God often picks the, the, the second born, the third born, the person that you wouldn't expect to accomplish his purposes. We do know that God can be honored through the um, relatively private ministry of the widow and her two mites. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do know that Jesus came to, to set at liberty those that were oppressed, Mark 4.18. There's many situations in Scripture where I mean, think of even King David, where the the pipsqueak of the family is picked over all of his many older brothers to be king. So that's true. Mm-hmm. It is true that uh, God often uses the unexpected. But listen to this. He uses the unexpected very often to rise to a position of prominence and to do something extraordinarily wonderful and influential within his redemptive timeline. So this doesn't mean that every person that's exceptional or every person that's especially gifted or every church that's growing is necessarily a godly church. Just because you're a growing church doesn't mean you're a godly church. Just because you're a prominent name doesn't mean you're a godly person. Just because you have a large following doesn't necessarily mean God is using you. You could be a heretic. You could be a false teacher. But at the same time, what I want to push back against is this idea that Influence is somehow a bad thing, mm. that growth is somehow a, an indicator of compromise. We, we, we should all want to reach more people. We should all want to expand our influence, not for our honor and glory. Individually, we should all be quite content to fade into obscurity yeah. and to be unknown to future generations. But in the here and now, we want to leverage whatever gifts or abilities God has given to us. And I think many people are like lights that have been put under a bushel basket. Yeah. They have great gifts. There's churches that have wonderful things to offer and godly leadership and a lot of talent. But they sort of shyly and meekly hide and pretend behind the scenes because they, they're terrified of stepping out into the light because of the, the attacks that they believe they will experience or based upon some misguided notion that you know faithfulness equals smallness, that faithfulness by necessity equals obs- being, remaining obscure, sort of hiding your, your light under a bushel. Jesus never ta- chastises tall poppies for being tall poppies unless those tall poppies are dishonoring him and his purposes. Chris, it's interesting. As you as you look at Scripture, we can think of many people that are really significant in God's redemptive purposes. They're not perfect people. But I identified some of these in my article a few years ago. Think about Job and Abraham. Who doesn't like Job and Abraham? Job and Abraham are incredible figures in the Scriptures. Are they perfect? No, but they are incredible figures in the Scriptures. These men, by modern standards, would for sure be considered millionaires. They were incredibly wealthy. They had huge families. They had servants and livestock and land. These weren't guys living off poverty-level wages. They were very, very wealthy men. And their wealth was one of the things that drew people's attention to them. And as their people drew attention to these or, or looked to these individuals, they gleaned many powerful spiritual lessons from their lives and their examples and how they handled suffering and and so forth. Uh, David and Solomon, we appreciate the fact that God used them to write portions of the Bible. They were not perfect. They made some major, major mistakes, but they were incredibly wealthy individuals, and Solomon in particular was incredibly wise. 
and was looked to for guidance in a broad variety of subjects. We think of Daniel, who wasn't wealthy, but the guy's IQ must have been off the charts, and his wisdom and discernment, granted to him by God, were profound and influential for the people of God in Babylon. In the New Testament, we have Jesus, the rich young ruler comes and says he wants to be a follower of Jesus, and Jesus calls him out, and it's clear that his wealth stands in the way of his true desire to follow Christ. So you might think, well, then, if you're wealthy, you must by necessity be like a non-believer. Like, be only, only, the only true Christians must be absolutely poor people. If you're wealthy and God has given you a lot of money, you must be a bad person. Well, what do you do with Joseph of Arimathea, who was described in Scripture as a wealthy man and yet understood what his mission was and lent his tomb to Christ? What do you do with individuals like Philemon, who owned slaves, and when he was confronted by Paul in terms of his relationship with Onesimus, did the right thing? He was an influential man. What about Cornelius, who commanded an army and was an incredibly devout, just reading about him recently in my, my devotions, was an incredibly devout believer in God, and a man of prayer. So if you actually read scripture, what you discover is that there are extremely wealthy people, extremely bright people, extremely influential people that were actually very useful to God. We're, we also have the widow with her two mites. So we have the very wealthy, the very prominent, and we have the more obscure being used of by God. If a person loves God, regardless of their status in life, they can be very useful to God. So what, what I want to sort of push back against is this idea, well, God is only interested in the widow with her two mites. Those are the only kinds of people that God uses. God's only interested in the small, obscure church out in the rural area that, that kind of lays low and doesn't speak out in any church that's kind of growing. Look, there's a lot of churches that don't grow because they don't think there should grow. Yeah, yep. It's almost like a bad thing. We hear Christians saying this. Well, I want to go to a small church. It's like their Cheers bar. Mm -hmm. The Cheers show in the 1990s, everybody went there because everybody knew their name. It's like, I just want to go to a place where everybody knows my name. Well, what about the Great Commission? You know, what happened in Acts... Uh, in the second chapter of Acts, when Peter and the apostles were preaching, and uh, it was just a very fruitful time, and 3,000 people were converted and baptized in one day. You know, if that happened to, the, to a modern church, there'd be bloggers all over the place saying, oh, that must be a compromised church. There's no way God does that. God doesn't save that many people at once. If you baptize 100 people in a year, you must be a compromised church. Mm -hmm. you, must get the, you must be getting the gospel wrong. If you're actually growing and your numbers are increasing— I was talking to my son recently, and he was he was chatting with another Christian leader, and they were just chatting about church life, and he asked him, you know, how's your church going? And the guy's like, well, are, are any churches growing? Mm. It's almost like this weird idea that if you're faithful, you won't grow. Mm -hmm. To be faithful is to stay small. To be faithful is to stay quiet. To be faithful is to be poor. Mm -hmm. To be faithful is to say nothing. Where, where is that in the Bible? Mm-hmm. So I want to challenge that mindset. I think there's there's some falsehood there. I also think there's probably a bit of jealousy. And there's false views of what it means to actually be faithful and to be fruitful that are all sort of playing a role in this weird syndrome that is prominent in the Christian church today that we, we just refer to as tall poppy syndrome. Mm -hmm. So what I'm wondering then, how do we know if a Christian or let's say a church or a ministry has this syndrome, they, they tend to cut off the tall poppies. Yeah, I think there's there's many things you're going to see. Uh, let me just make one other comment here. The fact of the matter is, is that when we look back at biblical history, we're okay with tall poppies. As we look back at church history, we're also okay with tall poppies. Who doesn't appreciate Martin Luther? Who doesn't appreciate John Calvin? Who doesn't appreciate John Wesley? Who doesn't appreciate some of the great evangelists and missionaries, the Hudson Taylors of the world? We appreciate these people after they're dead. <laughs> mm -hmm. But sometimes we fail to honor them or appreciate how God is using them in the moment. So we know that God has no ultimate need of us, but several 
points that I included in my my article that I believe are indicators that a person or ministry or church might be struggling with tall poppy syndrome uh, are as follows. And by the way, if you're listening and you're a part of an elders council or you're a pastor or a prominent leader, I, I would encourage you to just kind of analyze and assess are some of these mindsets or notions present in my life and are they actually sinful? And may, is it possible that they're actually hindering the way I lead the church? Am I inadvertently communicating to the church that you know being small is better, mm-hmm. that not growing is somehow more faithful, that driving people away is part of the Christian call? Just kind of assess. You, you may be hiding your light under a bushel or you may be guilty of waging undue attacks against people that God is actually using for his his purposes. Mm-hmm. So here are some things I've noticed. The first would be like automatically, so if this is your default, automatically assuming that growing churches must be compromised. So if it's growing, it must be compromised. If it's growing, we need to go in and do some detective work. It must be compromised. And then at the same time, tied to that overlooking the numerous churches scattered across our countries that are dysfunctional, that may teach falsehood, that may not be life-giving, that may be teaching flat-out heresy, and we don't pay attention to those because they're just small and obscure and they don't carry a big stick in culture. Hmm. So if that's that's your mindset, if your default is big is bad, Mm -hmm. small is spiritual, I think you need to maybe re reconsider your mindset and ask, is that actually a paradigm that's backed up by scripture? And I would just say it's not. That's what mm-hmm. you're going to discover. Mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, disparaging or picking on high-profile leaders, like analyzing and assessing every clip, every sermon, every blog post. Look, we're all going to misspeak. And beyond that, more often than misspeaking, we're probably going to be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. I mean, I consider myself a relatively clear communicator. I may not be the most clear communicator that's ever lived, but I, I work hard at trying to be clear. Man, if I had a dollar for every time I was misunderstood or misquoted, I'd be a very, very wealthy guy. But the, here's, the, here's the fact of the matter. The more sermons you preach— the more articles you write, the more books you write, the more songs you produce, the more conferences you speak at, the more conversations you have. Hopefully, you're going to have more and more influence and fruit for God's honor and glory. But at the same time, you're also going to be open to more criticism. That's just a fact of the matter. If Think about this, Chris. If the average preacher, if, if 100,000 words come out of the average preacher's mouth, I don't know, every day, or every week, I've never counted the number of words that come out of our mouths, but if let's say 100,000 words multiplied over 50 years of ministry, of course we're gonna misspeak. Of course we're gonna lack precision at times. Of course we're gonna change our minds. But a lot of what people pick on tends to be nuances. So if a person's up there saying Jesus isn't God, period, and within context, that's what they're saying. Jesus mm-hmm. isn't God. They're not saying, I heard a guy say Jesus wasn't God. Yeah. Well, that's obviously heresy. That's a problem. But rarely do you hear people being raked over the coals for that. It's it's more he, sh- he said, she said. Mm-hmm. It's allegations. It's innuendo. It's it's clips here and there. It's it's a tweet. You know, how many words can you possibly put in a tweet? It, it's a it's a Facebook post. It's a shared article. It's mm-hmm. a meeting that you heard about through a friend of a friend of a friend. And we just believe it because that person's in a big church or a big ministry or a big seminary. They must be compromised. So I I would say while, while we want to be above reproach and we want God's standards to be absolutely present in our lives, we have to exercise a bit of grace too, understanding that the more just... The people that don't make decisions are never going to be open to criticism. But people that make decisions are going to sometimes get their decisions wrong. Hmm. The people that seem to be the greatest experts on leadership are the people that don't lead. 
the people that seem to have the, the, the strongest opinions on how a church should be led are the people that aren't leading churches. So there, there, there can tend to be, a, I think, a bit of uh, you know, a lack of fairness in our treatment of prominent leaders. Third, uh, when you ignorantly teach that the more average the church is, the closer it is to the New Testament ideal. This is kind of like people that run around saying, well, in the early church, they met in homes, so it's just it's better to meet at homes. That's, that's the biblical way. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. They only could meet in homes. Now, when they had the opportunity, they met in synagogues. And as soon as Christianity was legal, they quickly built buildings. But people have this very naive, you know, the early church is perfect, small is better, house churches are the way to go. It's, it's very reductionistic. Mm-hmm. And again, not backed up by the broader narrative of Scripture where God is often using the wealthy, the prominent. Think of Paul. Paul was converted, spent many years in training, but the guy was also brilliant out of the gates. He was a well-educated Pharisee. He had a, a lineage that gave him some clout in culture. He was obviously very smart and God used him for amazing purposes. The written prophets, of course, there's many oral prophets, Elijah, Elisha, but the the oral prophets, you look at their, so let's, let's just say you're looking at Isaiah or Jeremiah. Um, it's God's word. It's true. It's inspired by God, but it's also just incredible literature. These people had some pretty significant gifts in terms of their ability to write and communicate, and God used them. David's ability to write song, the sons of Korah, their ability to write song, Solomon's wisdom and insight, his proverbs are profound and yet simple at the same time. God uses personality and ability to accomplish his purposes, and that's okay. And then third, uh, or fourthly, teaching that uh, averageness is the only form of faithfulness. I, I think I actually believed this subconsciously when I was growing up, that faithfulness meant a few things. It meant doing the same thing over and over again, whether or not it worked. It meant laboring in obscurity. It meant being old-fashioned. It meant laying low, not ruffling feathers, not causing any waves. It's almost like this notion of faithfulness is just being still and stalled. Well, there's times in our lives when we need to be still before the Lord. We're not always going to be super productive. There's going to be times of greater fruitfulness than others. But faithfulness is also tied to fruitfulness. Mm-hmm. So one could say as a proverb, meaning a general truth, there's obviously plenty of exceptions to it, that growing churches and ministries are not necessarily faithful churches and ministries, but faithful churches and ministries should anticipate that they will be growing churches and ministries. Mm -hmm. So faithfulness leads to fruitfulness. And we wanna make sure, of course, that we're assessing and analyzing and describing fruitfulness not just in terms of numbers, although numbers matter. We often hear people say, numbers don't matter. Uh, Yeah, they do. Mm -hmm. What, you're into numbers? Oh, I'm into people, and I'd rather reach 100 people than 10, and I'd rather reach 1,000 than 100, and I'd rather reach 10,000 than 100. I mean, these people are made in the image and likeness of God. Of course we're into numbers. Mm -hmm. Of course we want more and more people to come to Christ, Not, not so that we get paid more, not so that we get more applause. In fact, little heads up, the more people you have, the more headaches you'll have. But if you want to reach people because you see people as made in the image and likeness of God, what person wouldn't want their church or ministry to, to be growing if you're properly motivated? Now, be careful, analyze and assess yourself and make sure before God, it actually is for God and not for your own glory and grandeur because that's gross if it's, if it's about you needing to be part of something bigger, that's gross. That's not the kind of thing we want to promote. That's yucky. But if you understand 
that there's a sea of humanity out there, and these people are made in the image and likeness of God, you should be doing everything within your power to reach more and more people for Christ and asking God to give you more fruit for your labor. Mm -hmm. Again, not so that you can go home and say, hey, look what I did, but for God's honor and glory. So let's get rid of this weird mindset that somehow being stalled and not growing and not being fruitful is being faithful and work hard to see lives impacted for God's honor and glory. And that generally means expanding your influence and increasing your numbers and reaching more and more people for uh, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. One thing as you were talking that stuck out to me, the idea of um, looking at somebody else's ministry. If if somebody else's ministry fails and you experience even a shred of satisfaction or joy in that, that would be a huge symptom of tall poppy syndrome. Of course, unless right. they're complete heretics and you want them to fail. <laughs> <laughs> Except even then, scriptures warns about being too excited when your enemy fails. <laughs> yeah, true. Right. But like we we don't want the Mormon church to be successful. Correct. We don't want Muslims to be successful because they're destroying lives. They're teaching falsehood. We don't want churches. So even Christian churches are teaching heresy. Our number one goal is is repentance. Yeah. It's much easier to see repentance than to see things fold and you have to start all over again. When we have disputes with Christian ministries or other churches and, and you, you confront, there may be this assumption where you're just attacking us. You think you're better than us. No, we want you to realign with the purposes of God for your organization. But if sometimes ministries are so far gone, the spirit is left the room a long time ago that there's there's humanly speaking at least there's not a lot of chance for mm-hmm. for um for recovery mm-hmm. so what would you say if we were to zero in on some of the negative effects of tall poppy syndrome on ministry what would you say some of those are well if god is actually doing the work and we fail to acknowledge it instead just pick on an attack then we're actually dishonoring god so if god has chosen a david a Solomon, a Joseph of Arimathea, or Cornelius, a Paul, a Daniel, to do unusually awesome things in a particular generation. And you're the guy that's writing the blogs and throwing the stones and just denigrating and spending all your time searching through sermon clips to f- try to find the, the slightest error. Well, you're the problem. And if you're also doing that and you spend no time criticizing supposedly less influential ministries who may actually be guilty of some bad stuff, you also need to check your heart. Like, are you doing it because you're seeking prominence? You, you want to be known as the Bible policeman? You want to be known as, you know, the, the Berean, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you may be a Berean. Because again, so I, I want to be clear here. Paul said, Alexander the coppersmith has done me wrong. There's nothing unbiblical about calling out falsehood Mm -hmm. by name. And there's nothing wrong with chastising those that are teaching falsehood. And oftentimes, there are big ministries that are compromised ministries, and they deserve to be called out. But you shouldn't be going after them because they're big. You should be going after them because they're compromised. And if you're consistent, you're going to go after all the compromise you see Mm -hmm. for the right reason. So the goal is to bring about repentance. It's very tempting in our flesh to want to be right and to pick on and chastise and denigrate people that we perceive to be wrong not because we want purity in the church, not because we want God to be honored and glorified, because we want to be right and we want our enemies to be wrong. Mm -hmm. So in our flesh, we have to really think through this. Am I motivated by a holy desire to see God shine in my life? Or am I being motivated by a desire to be prominent, to be known, to be considered a Berean, and to, to prove that I was right? when I wrote that article or preached that sermon or called them out at such and such a date. So we have to be ruthless with our uh, analyzing and assessing our motives. 
Secondly, let's be honest. Most of these ministries are being run by men, which we agree with, but men are competitive. Mm-hmm. I remember growing up, I had three brothers. We competed with one another. I have three sons. They competed with each other. You know, they're always fighting and carrying on with their kids and wrestling and trying to one-up each other. It was funny because at one point in time, they're all adults now, but at one point in time, we'd like ban physical touch. It's like, okay, guys, enough. Like, I'm tired of catching you beating on your little brother or picking on each other or doing, you know, bullying each other. Enough's enough. Like, just, you're done. Don't even put a finger on each other. Boys are competitive. You know, we get saved. We enter into Christian ministry. There's a certain fun aspect to competitiveness, you know, where we're challenging each other and, you know, guys have that sort of camaraderie where it is fun to, to compete a little bit and challenge each other. And women don't understand this, but it's, it's hilarious when guys ridicule each other's looks and, you know, ridicule each other for things we've said. I enjoy that. <laughs> I enjoy being the recipient of that and the the doling it out <laughs> doling it out you know that chris yeah 100% although you've been picking on me a lot more than i've been picking on you lately oh wow <laughs> <laughs> but um that that's fine but when we justify jealousy and competitiveness and our own insecurity and we try to make ourselves look like i'm the guy i'm the bible policeman i'm out I'm the guy that's out uh, making sure you preach the right sermon and sing the right music and post the right blogs and do the right thing because, you know, I, I, I just really love Jesus. But in actual fact, you're just jealous. That's a problem. That's a problem. And so we want to make sure that we, these are, th- these are things that relate to the, the heart, but they, they need to be assessed and analyzed because it's easy to pass off sin in the name of of uh, righteousness. It's also possible for us to, um, and by the way, if you're listening, like a lot of these points that I am going over are are in uh, the, the the blog article at Pursuit of Glory that I I wrote a few years ago. But um, if you if you kill off tall poppies or at least discourage them from reproducing themselves, you can actually rob people of those papa bear figures that are often such a blessing to the rest of us. Mm-hmm. When I was a younger pastor in particular, I would I would look for those tall poppies, those, those papa bear pastors, the guys that had a lot of experience, a lot of wisdom that people looked to for guidance and direction. I wasn't idolizing them, but I wanted to know what they thought about the issues of life. We have some men in our own generation that are tall poppies that have been incredibly useful to the Lord. And it's good to to read their work and listen to their sermons and consider what they say. They're, we're not elevating them to the status of Messiah. But if we make the mistake of saying, no, everybody has to be the same, everybody has to sort of be content with average. By the way, there's nothing wrong with being average, but in order to be average, you have to have below average and you have to have above average by definition. To be average, you have to have a higher and low. And there's going to be people that are above average, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to kill them off. And many above average churches and ministers are super helpful to average churches and ministries. We've, we have found that, that as we've looked to above average churches and ministries over the years, they've they've blessed us. And I want them to flourish like I, I want other churches to outgrow ours. I want people to be more influential because we benefit from that. And I think that's a good thing. And then also if we if we have just a, a default negative view of quote unquote success, of numbers, of influence, what that does is that often subliminally and not so subliminally hinders us from taking risks from expanding our reach, from seeking to reach more people for Christ, lest we ourselves be chopped off. Mm. I was speaking to a Christian leader lately, and they were talking about how they had some building concerns. They sort of outgrew their building. Okay, well, when are you gonna build a new building? Uh, We don't really wanna do that. We kinda like being small. Okay, so what's your solution? They didn't have one. Why, guys? Like, why? Like, we, we have to be careful, too. We don't, we don't want to go to church for selfish reasons. Well, I, I don't want to be part of a church where I don't know everybody. Like, where, where does that mindset come mm-hmm. from? 
be a church with small groups. There's nothing wrong with your church growing. Mm -hmm. In fact, even from, we talk a lot about cultural apologetics, there's a place in our culture and ministry for large faithful churches. They, sorry to say this, but they, they tend to intimidate the state a little bit more. They carry a bigger stick in culture. The state's gonna think twice, a politician's gonna think twice about going after 15 large churches that are actually taking a stand, because it's all about politics for them, right? Then, uh, you know, a church of 10 people, the church of 10 people could be incredibly faithful, but they're, they're just not gonna pay as much attention to that because they don't represent a big voting block. So strategically speaking, some people don't like pragmatism, I don't mind a measure of it. The bigger the church, the more the more strong the influence of Christians in a particular area, the more influence you have over politics. Now, if you have proper influence over politics and you have proper influence over the state, people's lives are ultimately blessed by that. Mm -hmm. This is your motive. People's lives are ultimately blessed by that. We have no interest in interfering with uh, statecraft when the state is dealing with infrastructure and roads and budgets. We don't we don't talk about that stuff. But when the state is passing laws that are religious or promoting abortion or promoting same-sex marriage or these other godless um, activities, well, 3,000 people speaking out against that is going to be heard a lot more than 10 people speaking out against that. So don't, don't be afraid of seeing your church grow. And there, there is a there can be a discomfort for that. I I love people, and I remember there was a time when I knew everyone's name in our church, and even for new people, I would typically know them within maybe two, three weeks. If you'd come out two or three times, I'd know your name. I would have met you. There came a point in time when I just couldn't keep up. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I just I have to get over myself. Uh, yeah, everybody's not going to know me. That kind of bothers me a little bit because I'd like to be known, but. For the sake of the whole, you have to sacrifice some of those comforts that you you lean into um, in order to reach more people for Christ. So listen carefully, listeners. Every one of you should want to influence more people for Christ. You should desperately want to see more people come to Christ. You should want, for God's honor and glory, to expand your influence. That's a good thing. Expand mm -hmm. your influence. Maximize your reach. Maximize your fruitfulness. Don't apologize for it. And don't think ill of those who are faithful to the Lord that he happens to be using to do wonderful things. So we need to, we need to come together. Uh, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, there's that imagery of the body. The pinky is just as significant as the whole arm. So some of us will be pinkies, some will be arms, some will be the head, you know, mm -hmm. some will be more prominent, but we all have a role to play. And instead of having this small mindedness that says, well, we just want everyone, everyone in the field to be the same height. No, we should be okay with the fact that while most of us will be average, every once in a while, there's a poppy that's going to grow a little bit taller, spread its seed a little bit further. And that's a good thing. Don't mm -hmm. chop those seeds off. Don't chop those poppies off. Rejoice with the Lord when he raises up the Daniels, the Jobs, the Abrahams, the Pauls, the Joseph of Arimatheas. This is a good thing. The Martin Luthers, the John Calvins. This is a good thing. We should champion that and get behind godly leaders and allow God to use them for his honor and glory. Of course, I'll say it again, because I don't want to be misunderstood. If they are guilty of error, of falsehood, the conversation needs to be had, the confrontation needs to be made. Oftentimes it's very legitimate to do that in a public venue. If you said it publicly, well, then you're open to public criticism. But let's check our motives. Yeah. And make sure we're not motivated by some sort of a naive jealousy, but mm -hmm. champion the fact that God will use people to different degrees at different points in time and and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So as we think about this and kind of think solutions mindset, what are the solutions for tall poppy syndrome? And you've kind of alluded to a few of them, but what what do you think there? Yeah, well, check your heart. Make sure that when you are criticizing that you're doing it 
for God's honor and glory and not because there's a jealousy or weakness in your own life. And when you see tall poppies that are honoring the Lord, champion them and thank them and honor them for that. Because the more your prominence, the greater temptation there can be to compromise. And the more your prominence, the greater you might be open to attack by the devil. You know, if, you, if you're the devil, you're going to go after the tall poppies because if you can take the tall poppies down, they just influence more, more people. They take more people down with them. That's why when pastors fall in ministry, for example, Chris, you have various examples, even in the last few years, of pastors getting up from their congregations and saying, you know, I sinned, I did this, I did that. And the bloggers come out in full force and then you hear people saying, this is why I don't go to large churches. This is why the mega churches failed. That's not true at all. For every prominent leader that falls, there's hundreds and hundreds of smaller ones that no one hears about because nobody cares. We've had, in our own church, I know I know of several men that used to pastor churches that fell in ministry that have since been restored. They're not in vocational ministry any longer. Nobody blogged about them. Nobody posted their story in the in the newspapers. They didn't make it into the gossip column columnists. Um, they they sinned equally, but they just weren't as the the ripple effects weren't as obvious. Nobody really cared, to be honest, which is a sad thing. So checking your heart, definitely confronting sin, uh, championing and, and thanking the Lord that there are faithful people. I'll just I'll just give one example. I actually don't follow him, but I've known of him for years. Think of a guy like a John MacArthur. Um, I I I'm thankful that here's a guy in his 80s that's still faithfully preaching. Does it mean that you have to agree with everything he says or every view he has? No. But there is a track record of faithfulness there. Perfection? No, not perfection but a track record of faithfulness and influence. And why would we not celebrate that? Mm -hmm. And why would we not also give, why would our default not be to, to, uh, not be to give deference or to assume the best rather than assuming the worst if we hear something negative about a man like that? Mm. So that's, that's the kind of culture that I long to see in the Christian community. And if we do, if we are at times called upon to to speak out, to confront, our motive should be ultimately for restoration, for repentance, mm -hmm. not to be right, not to make ourselves look good. And we have to be careful because we can so easily be motivated by unrighteous anger or vindictiveness or frustration or irritability, and we must be motivated by upholding the the, the honor and glory of God and out of love for that person that has uh, been caught in error. Mm -hmm. So as you say that, one of the things that comes to mind is, um, and maybe this is just revealing the sinfulness of my own human heart, but there can be a temptation to want to cut off a tall poppy because in doing so you actually gain influence because you kind of, they're, they're talked about by everybody. So if you share something or start criticizing somebody that's, or some organization that's big, all of a sudden you get the likes and follows and become a tall poppy yourself in a different sort of way, right? And it's just, you're kind of leeching off of their influence almost. Yeah, I think that's that's true. There, again, this, this boils down to ruthlessly asking questions like, why do I think, act, and feel the way I do? Like, what, what, what is my motive? What, why do, why do I get worked up about ABC and not XYZ? Well, like, why is that? So we have to, for our American listeners, that would be Z, X, Y, Z. <laughs> um, why, why do we get worked up about that sermon that was preached? Why do we get worked up about that blog? Are we doing it for the honor and glory of God? Or So I've, I've called out various churches over the past couple of years for what I think is, is a failure to be faithful to Scripture. And I, I'm not going to back down on that. But I have to check my spirit. I have to check my attitude. I have to make sure that I'm doing it out of a desire to see God honored and glorified. And 
you know, I, I the, the heart is deceitful above all things. So I, I don't know if I could know fully and completely what my motives always are, but as best as I can determine them, I want to make sure I'm being motivated properly. Mm-hmm. And even when I express anger, it needs to be righteous anger. When I am, now I'll just say this, Chris, too. One thing that comes to my mind is if you have a track record of confrontation and anger towards unrighteousness and boldly speaking against error, I would hope that parallel to that, you also have a track record of maximum grace, maximum mercy, and restoration. Mm -hmm. And if you only have one and not the other, the problem is probably with you. But if you can demonstrate that you are both in the bold confrontation business, but also in the biblical restoration business, in the speaking the truth business, but also in the love business, in the calling out evil business, but also in the mercy mercy business, then that's an indication that you're a well-balanced person. Mm-hmm. One final question. We've spake, most of this podcast has been directed at the, maybe you could say the average poppies talking towards or thinking about how they deal with the, the tall poppies. Um, so assuming that there's going to be some tall poppies listening to a podcast like this, one of the challenges for them rising up, obviously they've been the threat of being cut down by others, but can also be what you've spoken to about motive, how they don't want to be motivated poorly, but maybe God's given them five talents, right? And they're supposed to steward the five talents, not bury it. Um, how would you give advice to that that tall poppy as to what do you do? Do you put your uh, light under a, a basket or do you... You shine it brightly, but what do you do about motive in that? Well, I think it's it's like when you have children. When you have children, all of a sudden you're hit with this solemn responsibility. I have this baby. I need to I need to care for this baby. I need to feed this baby. Then there's a second child, maybe a third child, a fourth child, a fifth child, and so on. And the more children you have, you 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 acclimatize you acclimatize to those that responsibility. But every once in a while, you're like, man, I'm I'm responsible for a lot of people. And in this in the same way, when God expands your reach, your influence and in ministry, you have to be very careful to acknowledge how weighty that stewardship is, and make sure that you are walking with the Lord and make sure that you have people in your life that are speaking into it. And like when you get that compliment, you know, immediately giving glory and honor to God, when you get that criticism, not allowing it to deflate your balloon, but understanding that that's part of the game that people are going to criticize. And there may be some legitimacy to that at times, and there may be some falsehood to that uh, at times. Also making sure that you are honoring and taking time for the average poppies and the little bit smaller poppies in the field. So this means that if you're a, you know, a big name pastor, or a big church, and you're one of those pastors that's well known and you, you only ever hang out with millionaires and you only ever, ever talk to your elders and you only ever, ever hang out with other big name pastors, that could be an indication of a heart issue. Mm. Uh, no matter how big your church, you should always have time for the obscure. Uh, you should always have time for the, the down and outer you know, you should always have time for the average man. So we, there's, there's a lot of a, there's a bit of a balancing uh, act. I don't want to call it an act in the sense that you're performing, but there's a balancing act here where there's a lot of considerations to take into play, uh, to take into consideration. I think some of the people that I respect the most who are tall poppies are those that almost have a, almost lack an awareness of how tall of a poppy they are. Hmm. They don't. They don't think about that too much. They they steward their their gifts and talents for God, but it doesn't. They don't become a different person when their influence expands. They're they they're real. They're authentic. They're genuine. And maybe that may that be true of all of us because as we as we grow older, presumably, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in the the, the height of poppy in the field. You are going to grow somewhat taller. You are going to have more influence. You are going to become the the Papa Bear pastor. You're, there's going to be a time when you're going to walk into a room and you're one of the old guys. 
and wh- and you're one of the most experienced guys. That's going to happen if you're faithful. And that's okay. Don't let it, quote unquote, go to your head. Don't put too much confidence in that, but just thank the Lord and be prepared at a moment's notice to let it go. Mm. So we often talk about cupped hand and think of a cupped hand. That's your stewardship. Ownership is the enemy of stewardship. You own nothing. You don't own your church. You don't own the your elders. You don't own your band. You don't own your blog. You don't own your books. You don't own your sermon. That's a stewardship. And ownership is a deadly, deadly enemy of stewardship. Mm-hmm. You cannot be both. But when you understand that your ministry is a stewardship, and the, the imagery I like is when you hold it with a cupped hand rather than a closed fist, if God comes along and says, okay, your your time in the spotlight is done, like, okay, that's fine, Lord. I'll I'll serve in the shadows. I'm I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. Or the Lord calls you home. Okay, I'm I'm fine with that. I don't I don't need to defend myself. If the elders say it's time to go, you know, you the church has outgrown you or you've outgrown the church or whatever the issue might be. Obviously you you don't want to be treated with uh with injustice, but our identity is not in our our ministry output. We are sons and daughters of a, of a loving king. And at the end of the day, we're not we're not scored based upon our productivity, but we are going to be rewarded based upon how we have stewarded the resources that God has given to us. So let's steward them well, regardless of where we, you know, we we end up in the field. Very well said. Well, we will we will link the article for the tall poppy syndrome in the show notes. So make sure to look for that wherever you get this podcast. A reminder that this podcast is not only heard on the CJXC radio and the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, but you can also go over to pursuitofglory.org and download the episodes there. Uh, that's Pastor Aaron's uh his personal blog, but it's actually not his, it's the Lord's. <laughs> so just see stewarding. And the pursuit of glory is not the pursuit of my glory, by the <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Just to be clear. So that's good. Make sure though to um, to download the podcast. Please do share it and subscribe and rate so that you get uh, each episode delivered right to you. And Lord willing, we will have you back next week for another installment of the Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. 